Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Okay, well, good morning, Mo. Morning. Uh, it's been a long morning for me. I've already been in the gym. So obviously I got, I got the cup, you know, so, uh, oh, yeah. I hope you're, uh, I've got my old school cup and Ashish one is coming for you. I promise you that. Exactly right. That's, that's, uh, the very lucrative benefit of, uh, participating in these high level discussions is you get an ortho Joe mug. So let me introduce uh, our guest, uh, uh, Dr. Ashish Beattie. He's got a lot of titles here. This might take most of the, uh, of our time, but, uh, Ashish is the director of the Michigan Center for Human Athletic Medicine and Performance. He is the Harold and Helen W. Gehring Professor of Orthopedic Surgery uh, and Chief of Sports Medicine and Shoulder Surgery at the University of Michigan. He's also the head uh, orthopedic surgeon for uh, Michigan Athletics, which is, that's the square M, right? We're in Minnesota, we're, <laughs> we're the angle M, right? But they're both block M's, I, I think, but we're, we're the angle, you're the straight. It's, yeah. the, it's the winning app, Mark, the winning app. <laughs> well, I can't argue with that, uh, given the past two decades. But anyway, uh, to continue on, um, uh, head consultant uh, for the NBA, are you also taking care of the Lions too, Ashish? I, I ju just stepped away from it for the first year, Mark, so oh, former, okay. for, former Lions doc. Okay, but you also consult for many teams in the NFL and NHL. So suffice it to say, uh, a world expert in sports medicine. And uh, Mo and I, uh, we did uh, a discussion about injectables, uh, and uh, neither he or I are true experts uh, in this uh, field, so we wanted to find an expert, and your name came to the top of the list. So, Mo, I'm going to hand it off to you, and let's delve into the knowledge of this very bright young surgeon. Sure. So, uh, Ashish, um, one question that came up, you know, it's, it's come up a lot, right, is... Now, in the area, and I know your expertise is sports uh, upper extremity area and, and hip, and you know pretty well. You know you, you you cover the whole body basically with your knowledge and with respect to the uh, area of sports injury. I recall, um, and I look back at this around 2010, about 11 years ago, there was this big hoopla around, I guess, the pro football player Heinz Ward who had received PRP, and it led to this relative, I mean, at that time, explosion of interest into PRP. And I remember at that point looking up uh, an article by the editor of the uh, American Journal of Sports Medicine who had said, don't call it platelet-rich plasma, call it platelet-rich panacea. It's being used for everything out there. You know, a lot of skepticism early on, it's about a decade ago, but then you hear about Tiger Woods, Tom Brady, um, I've heard possibly Rafael Nadal and even uh, Ronaldo now has had some sort of stem, they call it stem cells. It's it's a big, huge, you know, um, area of confusion. But the one thing I did want to ask you is you've been doing lots of work on this. Uh, and I've seen some of the work you've done related to the NBA. Um, but what fundamentally uh, should we be really trying to understand about biologics in sports and specifically um, what are the major players? And are we there yet uh, with respect to these, uh, you know, various options for us. I know PRP comes to the top, but that doesn't mean there aren't others at play. 
Yeah, those are uh, really great questions, Mo. And I'll take one step back. First, thanks for to you and Mark for having me. And, and secondly, I think, uh, Mark, it's an important point to share. You know, you kindly referred to me as an expert in this area. And the reality is, I think one step back from that is probably none of us are. I think it's uh, truly the area that's evolving the, the most in orthopedics. And we're learning, all of us are learning in real time. So I, I think the expertise changes. You know, what I would share, Mo, to, to point out, and you hit it very well, is the hardest area I think about orthobiologics, in my opinion, is always maintaining your integrity to separate the perception and the promotion, if you will, from the science. And that's a critical area because in sports medicine by nature, what brings stem cells or PRP or orthobiologics to the forefront is often the famous athlete who utilizes it. And but as, as you know better than anyone, you've taught me, you know, that falls somewhere below level five evidence, uh, if that exists. And what we really should be making our decisions by is what's truly in the journal published by you and Mark and others, right? The level one and level two evidence. But at the same time, you don't want to be the cynic who says, well, none of that works. It is platelet-rich panacea, if you will. And then you throw away all of the opportunities that do come with it. So to, I guess, answer your later question, well, we're far from there yet, but have we made advances since, you know, Heinz Ward used it for an MCL sprain on the sideline? I think we have. And I think we're starting to recognize more that there are absolutely roles and areas to apply biologics. But each year, as we do better quality trials, better quality benchtop to bedside work, we're refining our indications a bit. You know, the danger is the one size fits all. You know, platelet-rich plasma, for example, has some very good level two evidence to work, for example, for patellar tendonitis, like you mentioned for Rafa Nadal, or elbow tendonitis, or even in the situation of osteoarthritis of the knee, where it now has been shown to have every bit of the efficacy and maybe even better longevity than corticosteroid. But as you know, Mo, the danger becomes that those indications dangerously start to uh, to migrate, to use it for anything and potentially everything, and then to provide promises of regeneration of tissue or you know favorable restoration of tissue, which might be different than, for example, pain relief or the, the, an anti-inflammatory or pro-inflammatory response that may be very different than tissue regeneration. So I think, you know, always continuing to push the limits on knowing where the, where the indications are, but defining those by evidence is the key and making sure that we don't over-promote. You know, for, for me, the area of stem cells is probably more so the hot button than, than platelet-rich plasma, because that is an area where it offers tremendous promise to the patient population can sometimes prey on hope for us to avoid the dreaded hip replacement or knee replacement. But the reality is in 2021, am I aware of any level one or two evidence that suggests stem cells allow for you know, restoration of cartilage and avoidance of, of end-stage arthritis? I'm not. I do think the promise exists as we continue to push the envelope, but you know, there are financial conflicts out there that sometimes push us to offer these treatments when we don't quite have the science. Yeah, Sheesh, can I just jump in here? Can you update our audience uh, on uh, the regulatory uh, issues that surround uh, these two uh, biologic interventions? Yeah, very, very much so, uh, Mark. As you're aware, um, the FDA tightly regulates the use of orthobiologics in general, and in particular, when it comes to stem cells, um, in the United States, those need to be, quote unquote, minimally, minimally manipulated. 
And that's an important distinguishing point from using stem cells, for example, abroad, um, where maybe those regulations don't exist. So for example, if you were to take bone marrow aspirate today or to use lipid-based stem cells today, they would need to come out of the body. They can then be minimally manipulated. They cannot be cultured. Um, you cannot increase them in quantity. Um, and, then, and then they need to be placed back in the patient um, to uh, adhere to our principles of safety. And there's lots of experts in the stem cell world far greater than I that will share why we don't want that. The risk of, for example, tumorous progression of a stem cell or ill-advised application in the wrong environment. Now abroad, Mark, those regulations are different. You know, They may in fact be able to be derived from other types of tissues, for example, embryonic tissue. They can sometimes be cultured up to reach a critical number. Some have referred to 10 to the sixth number of cells or beyond offering some potential. But it's very, very important that to your point that we distinguish those because um, it's across the board in orthobiologics, Mark, that we use these terms broadly. You know, for example, platelet-rich plasma, I'll pick on that one. Is all PRP the same? It's not, right? We can have leukocyte-rich and leukocyte-poor PRP. We can have platelets concentrated to a variable level. We can have PRP activated or not activated. We can be delivering PRP with a scaffold or without a scaffold. And similarly, when we refer to that um, for stem cells, you know, we often refer to bone marrow aspirate as a stem cell injection. But we know from good work from Scott Rodeo and others that maybe one out of every 10,000 of those cells is a stem cell. So in fact, how are we comparing across clinical trials when what we're using is heterogeneous and then the environment in which we're using it, you know, injecting it into a muscle or a tendon bone interface or a tendon is different. So one thing that we have to do really well and probably learn from Dr. Bandari is you're only as good as your studies. And so in sports medicine, I would like to hold myself, but also our colleagues to a higher level of, of, of credibility that we need to have trials that have uniformity in the application, but also uniformity in the type of orthobiologic we're delivering. You know, uh, Rob Laprade, I think in the journal, published a very good, important point of the so-called alignment of the MEBO criteria, which is the minimal information that we need to provide when we're delivering an orthobiologic, which speaks to these issues. How many cells? Was it activated? What was the source? So we're talking about apples and apples. That's been a really, really important requirement that we've applied at the journalist is the details of how the material is handled, prepared, and delivered have to be there before we'll consider uh, publishing the manuscript. So, sorry, I interrupted, Mo. No, no. I mean, I, just to go further, I think, you know, um, there was a statement that I recall that really sort of rang true in my reading around, you know, what's been happening. And it's kind of, it's fairly intuitive, but I'll read it out to you, uh, Ashish. And I wouldn't mind getting from you your thoughts on if we were to design what we would call a high quality study, what would that look like broadly? But, you know, the issue is the nomenclature of PRP products is notoriously confusing. And actually, because it's so confusing, it's hindered research efforts. And the challenge is no matter what you do, it always seems that there's another uh, opportunity to say, well, you know, that's too narrow or that's not broad enough. Um, you haven't standardized enough. Um, how do we actually get to getting better evidence? Even though I do know, and I suspect you're aware too, there have been hundreds of randomized trials, albeit small ones, um, that have been conducted in the area of PRP across the whole panacea of different indications. 
Yeah, one, wonderful question, Mo. And I, I suppose to answer that, it depends a little on the application, right, which has been one of the challenges because we have been so broad. But maybe I'll pick on one, for example. You know, we will often hear about application of PRP for the muscle strain injury, you know, uh, the hamstring strain or the quad strain. And then we hear about why are we applying that, Mo? And everybody may have a different goal. A sports surgeon like me in season may say, well, boy, might that reduce the morbidity from six weeks to four weeks or three weeks? Whereas uh, somebody, uh, a more purist may say, well, is it really about that? Or is it about getting favorable healing to minimize the risk of recurrence and to maximize muscle strength and recovery? So I guess I would start, Mo, where for us, before we even think about the formulation of PRP, let's take a step back to make sure that we've designed the study the right way by, by homogeneity. So I'll pick on the hamstring strain because I'm, I'm involved in a study right now where when you look at many of the studies that are published, we report them as strains. But as you and I know, um, strains mean a lot of things. You know, they can be mid-belly strains, proximal or distal myotendinous strains. In fact, we did a study that shows if you were to take four radiologists and say, grade these strains on MR imaging uh, by a, by a well-published BAMIC criteria, uh, there's not even great inter-observer reliability when imaging is present. So I think the first step, Mo, is we have to pick a problem where we can identify with clarity that we're all talking about the same condition. These are all MRI-proven grade two strains in this location, step one. Step two is I think then we need to have clarity in our hypothesis. You know, is the hypothesis about expedited return to play, like Heinz Ward, or is it about better healing of the tissue? or you know, a regeneration of tissue. And those are gonna have totally different outcome measures. And you speak about this really well, so I'll steal your own words, right? Which is we're only as good as what we measure. And so sometimes if you wanna prove that PRP works, you measure a patient reported outcome like pain relief or something that really isn't sensitive enough to pick up whether we used PRP or a placebo or corticosteroid. So we need to choose the measure in the study that's getting to our goal. If it's favorable healing, it might be imaging or a tissue biopsy. But if it's truly expedited return to play, then that's a different criteria. And then I think it actually becomes much easier, Mo, because if we ask the right question with the right outcome measures and choose a standardized patient population, then I don't think it much matters which PRP formulation we use or which stem cell formulation we use. That becomes easier to then look at those specific variables, if it's leukocyte rich or poor, or platelet rich or poor, or if it's bone marrow derived or lipid derived stem cells, the problem is we have all those variables that we wanna look at in the biologic, but we start with a study design that introduces 10 other confounding variables. That's exactly right, yeah. And, and it's, it's interesting, because you know, back, back you know, let's say 10 years ago, or even five years ago, start seeing everybody uh, was talking like we're using PRP as one of our focus topics today, but you know, there were hundreds and hundreds of different seemed to be preparations and everybody you'd speak with would say they don't do it the way I do. So my results are actually pretty good. And so there was never a control. The control was basically, I do something a little bit differently and my patients seem to really respond to it. So you're having these huge spikes of interest and popularity across you know hundreds of different formulations. And then you start getting into the small trials. Some show benefits, some don't show benefits, some show a big benefit. But on average, take, let's say, even NeoA, right? It wasn't intuitive that it would work in NeoA to be, you know, at the time. But I said, oh, okay, why is what's happening here? But the average treatment effect for PFP across all the different trials, maybe six or seven at that time, 
the average effect was really high, but the problem is it was so variable. You could go anywhere from having a, a miraculous effect to almost no effect. Whereas sort of the tried and true corticosteroids, they were less effect, but they were much more stable. You kind of knew what you were going to get. And I remember thinking to myself, there's probably something here. It's just so much variability. Once it gets figured out over time, you know, it probably has a role. And you've seen recently with the American Academy just coming out in August, you know, upgrading PRP. I think they say platelet-rich plasma may, may now reduce pain and improve function in patients with symptomatic OA of the knee. That is a big change um, from, you know, five years ago. So there has been some narrowing of, of indications uh, of that. And I suspect um, you probably, and maybe I'll ask you a very pointed question. Do you believe, and I think I know the answer, uh, that PRP does have a role in the management of patients in 2021? Yeah, um, great points you made, Mo. And I'll answer that, I think, in a very straightforward way. I think it absolutely does. And that probably is a difference than, um, than maybe where we were 15 or 20 years ago, which does speak to the fact that we are moving in the right direction. I think there's no question it has a role and it's probably a facet of, I do feel in 2021, every orthopedic surgeon's practice. You know, there is that patient population where we don't have a wonderful surgical indication and we're looking for a treatment option to offer that patient short of palliation. Now, the danger mode to your point is, is that a good indication um, that, we're, that we're indicating that patient for, for, or is it an indication because it's a seemingly benign intervention that isn't surgical, that offers us an option for that patient, that is a, a, another question that needs to be dissected because sometimes these procedures gain traction because they're favorable for the patient to hear that it's something pro-healing, pro-biology. It's favorable for us because we lack another tool in the toolbox, but that's different than being an effective treatment. And so, I, but, but to your point, I think it absolutely has a role. One other comment to make related to that, Mo and Mark, and I'd love your take on this is, I think another challenge for us, and we've gotten better in 2021, is I think in general, orthopedic surgeons have not had, myself included, really the intimate level understanding of biology and the way we should, right? We have some sense of, you know, what happens at a healing in thesis or in a tendon or in a muscle. But in terms of what the fundamental principles are, we don't. We had recently done a small survey study asking surgeons, you know, what do they think happens when you deliver a stem cell, you know, into a foreign environment? If I injected a stem cell into a muscle, and I think even among sophisticated people like, like ourselves who, who have a medical education, you would be surprised that many believe that that stem cell could potentially incorporate and become part of the healing environment. And the predominant thought among card-carrying PhDs who understand this work would say, not at all. You know, a, a single cell that's injected into a foreign environment likely dies in a short period of time without a scaffold and, a, and an environment to heal. And in fact, if stem cells work, they work via secretomes, right? Via a paracrine effect on the tissue, sort of like you're delivering a local endogenous PARP. And I think all of that creates this additional disconnect, which is we as providers don't truly understand it. Patients certainly like the idea of stem cell and healing and regeneration of tissue. So there's a natural momentum in the market for us to move that direction. And I think our jobs as responsible providers is to push the limit because there is something there. We don't want to cast a net and say, all of this is hogwash, but to do it in a way that, that actually is moving us forward and doesn't set us back by virtue of saying, all of this is just a financial opportunity and little else. Yeah, that's well stated, Ashish. Uh, 
You know, Mo, you and I have been advocates of large, simple trials forever. And I'm not sure that this is an area where a large, simple trial is even wise if it were feasible. Um, it, and I guess it gets back to, and you know, it, I'm always smile because anytime you speak uh, and you have the privilege of speaking, I, I chat with you all the time, Mark. So I'm speaking of you, but also with Ashish. When you speak with scholars, like people who really think about a problem, you rarely end a conversation with answers. You end a conversation with a lot more questions. That's basically what's happening, right? There's so many more questions and insights, I think, that um, and nuances that we have to think about. Anywhere from understanding the biology and going forward and saying, well, you know, it works in a lab, therefore we should just try it and it probably works clinically. But I think, Ashish, what happens all, a lot of times is, for many practicing surgeons is, I'm seeing an effect. I'm seeing my patients happy figure out why it's working. Like, tell me, you know, go backwards and say, why is this working? You know, it's like, it's, I don't understand it. And I think there's, you know, there's both sides of that, of that story, but both sides um, at the fundamental level and the clinical level in terms of research have a huge responsibility uh, for ensuring that we aren't, you know, over propagating something that has no utility or potentially could actually be harmful. I don't think that's the case. Um, with some of our discussions, but I do think it makes us all take a pause, look back and say, you know, uh, how do we all continue these discussions, uh, get as many viewpoints as we can, and ultimately try to slowly plod forward in this world that is evidence-based orthopedics. I totally agree, Mo, and I guess leaving, leaving a little bit on a point of optimism is what a wonderful opportunity. I can say this as a sports surgeon to two uh, incredibly capable trauma surgeons is, uh, you know, there's been a lot of areas where you guys have done such great work to, you know, your, your criteria for an outcome is very objective. You know, a fracture, a non-union either heals or it doesn't heal. And you have objective ways of demonstrating that on x-ray and CT. As a sports surgeon, um, dare I say it, right, a lot of our times, our structural outcomes have a gap between our functional outcomes. You know, a lot of rotator cuffs don't heal. You know, a lot of times we get something to heal, but the muscle remains atrophied. So I view that, Mo, as sort of in an, in an optimistic way. What an opportunity, because biologics will be what will likely change that. It probably won't be the next best suture anchor. It probably won't be a few more suture configurations. So I do think to your, your point that you left it with tons of questions, but tremendous opportunity, because how great would it be in 20 years if I said large to massive rotator cuff tears didn't have a north of 50% failure rate? and fatty atrophy of the cuff wasn't irreversible. Those are reversible, and now we understand those are the well-indicated applications for stem cells, not just a broad um, application anywhere and everywhere. Yeah. I was gonna say, Mark, Mark, I'm just happy that uh, Ashish thinks that orthopedic surgeons and trauma can agree on a non-union. I, I just didn't think that was a possible thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I don't yeah, know where you're it. getting that right. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely depth of knowledge uh, difference there, I think. <laughs> anyway, uh, Ashish, uh, Mo and I had really hoped that you would be able to uh, bring us up to date as to where we are. And I know uh, that even though we haven't discussed it, that you're you're up to planning such trials or, or involved in such trials that are going to help to uh, further elucidate what the real role of PRP and stem cells are. And we want to thank you uh, for spending time with us between cases. Thank you for arranging your schedule and your ortho Joe uh, coffee mug will be uh, in the mail. Um, 
Thank you, guys. I, thank you, guys. I would have done it for the good company without the mug alone. So <laughs> I appreciate the opportunity. It's always fun to hang out with you guys. Awesome. Yeah. Have a great Thanks day. Thanks so much, Shish. You guys too. Talk soon. Cheers. Bye.